Thank you. So do have your eyes on Malachi chapter 1. I wonder how many of you actually read the book of Malachi. Maybe a little bit. In that case, it's great to be familiar with this book. A few years ago, I got familiar with this book when I was a relay worker working for student ministries under UCCF. And I went through this book about 10 times. Fantastic, thank you. 10 times in one year with 10 different students. And every single time, I was challenged by this book. Every single time. And so my prayer today, that this chapter would challenge you. It would convict you. It would urge you and encourage you. So that you would once again see how great our God is. The God of the nations. And if you don't know him, then you'll see how great he is and turn to him in the first place. And let's get some context on Malachi since we could be very unfamiliar with this book. Malachi is the last of the minor prophets. It's the last of the Old Testament books. If you turned over after Malachi, you would get into Matthew. The New Testament would start. And so this is set about 400 years before the arrival of Jesus on the earth. 400 years before the New Testament. And it's also 100 years after God's people came back from exile. Now, during this time of coming back from exile, they have rebuilt the temple that was destroyed when they went to exile. The problem is the temple is nowhere near as great or as grand or as awe-inspiring of what it used to be. But still, they have a temple. They can still worship God once more. And the walls that were destroyed, they rebuilt. Although not as great or as grand or as awe-inspiring as once before, they still have walls. They can still protect themselves. And they rebuilt the city. Although the city is not as great or as grand or as awe-inspiring of what was before. But they have a city. They have houses. They have land. They have food to eat. And... They have a homeland, although not as great or as grand or as awe-inspiring of what went before, but still, they went back from exile. This is great. And they have a population. Again, not as great, not as grand or as awe-inspiring, but still, they have returned. In conclusion, they are a shadow of their former glory with a greatly reduced population. And before we start really looking to Malachi chapter 1, we must remember why they went into exile in the first place. Why did they? Well, because generation after generation, they disobeyed and ignored the word of the Lord. They disobeyed their God and broke his laws again and again and again and again. And they fell for the idol's of the nations, dismissing their God. And after time, after time, after time, God disciplined them and warned them and said, do not fall victim of disobeying the covenant that I've set before you to be my people. And he used his prophets as his spokesman, reminding them of who God is and warning them that if they continue, 
there would be dire consequences. He warned them that the exile was going to happen to humble them and to turn them back to him. He would restore his people after a while and return to him. And instead of destroying his rebellious, stubborn people, he would bring them back so they could rebuild the nation. Have another chance, have another go. Because God still remembers his promise to Abraham. And you were there this morning, we looked at Genesis chapter 12, which says that through Abraham, all the nations, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through him to point to Jesus. But as we unpack this chapter, we'll see that the promise of returning to a homeland does not solve the people's problems. But it is rather their hard-heartedness that threatens to wreck everything once again. So now, with that in mind, let us get into Malachi. So how did the people become hard-hearted if that's the problem? Well, look at the beginning of Malachi. Verse 2 says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But the problem is the people's response. How have you loved us? How have you done this, says the people. God's love, and therefore his faithfulness and his character, is questioned and put into suspect, into suspicion. They have forgotten their own recent history of God's faithfulness. And since they've slowly but surely believed in the lie of the lack of God's love, and faithfulness, and generosity, and character, their view of him has become twisted and skewed. They have clearly stopped seeing him as a should, a great and generous and gracious God, but rather as a tyrant that they have to obey. But hopefully some loopholes which they can get out of it. There is no joy found here, only half-heartedness, and as God says in verse 6, contempt for his name. So as the people's hearts have gone out of worshipping God, they have become complacent. They do the bare minimum. Yes, they serve and worship God, but it becomes, as we see in verse 12, and 13, a burden, contemptible. Do we really have to? I guess we will. And slowly resentment comes in and grows till we get this contempt of the Lord. And worse still, they're either in denial or they're completely blind to it. They don't even realize what they're doing is so offensive to God. And this is coming from the priests the people who should know better, the people who should know the law, they're actually breaking it. The priests are the ones guilty of blemish sacrifices, of defective sacrifices. And instead of rebuking the people that bring in blind sheep, lame sheep, diseased sheep, they go, yeah, that's good enough. Yeah, put on the fire. That's fine. 
Well, listen to what God says about this. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the beginning, into Leviticus. Chapter 22, verses 19 to 22. Let's see what God says about these defective sacrifices. Chapter 22, verses 19 to 22 of Leviticus says this. You must present a male without defect from the cattle, sheep, or goats, in order that it will be accepted on your behalf. Do not bring anything with a defect, because it will not be accepted on your behalf. When anyone brings from the herd or flock a fellowship offering to the Lord to fulfill a special vow, or as a free will offering, it must be without defect, defect or blemish to be acceptable. Do not offer to the Lord the blind, the injured, or the maimed, or anything with warts or festering or running sores, basically diseased. Do not place any of these on the altar as an offering made to the Lord by fire. Well, what offerings are they making to the Lord in Malachi? Blind animals, crippled animals, diseased animals, blemished animals. But maybe the priest just had poor training. Maybe they, they, they skipped that chapter accidentally. Well, Deuteronomy 15. Verses 19 to 21. God again says, Set apart for the Lord your God every firstborn male of your herds and flock. And it goes on to say, If an animal has a defect, defect, is lame or blind, or has any serious flaw, you must not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. Oh dear. It doesn't just say it once, it says it several times, do not do this. And instead... They offer great animals to the governor. I wonder who their Lord and God really is. But maybe I'm just exaggerating. After all, they're only sacrificing a bunch of animals wrongly, aren't they? I mean, it can't be that bad. Well, at the beginning of Malachi, it is clear that how they begin to treat God in their terms of worship... And how they view him affects how they live. If we read further into chapter 2 and onwards, we would see that adultery is rife and happening everywhere. There is oppression and injustice. And the priests are leading people away from God, not to him. In short, it is a mess. Because they've forgotten how God has greatly loved them and also of his great identity. They've forgotten how to respond as his people and becoming actually like the other nations. Instead of joyfully trusting in God, they have given God their blemish, defected remains and give their best instead to the human governor. Who do they more trust in? So they forgot how God loves them and they forget, therefore, how to rightfully apply God's laws and decrees in their very lives. And it's a disaster. Whether they realize it or not, God sees it for what it is. And is God impressed? No. God says, Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors. That you would not light useless fires at my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. And accept nothing from your hands, no offerings. 
He exposes Israel's corruption. To God, their biggest sin is how they're treating his name and how they're treating him with contempt. And vindicating his name, making his name great, is paramount. So the issue, really, as we see in chapter 1, isn't God's lack of love, but it's the people's lack of love for God. And despite his great faithfulness, they quickly forget it. And is it any surprise then that worshipping and serving him has become burdensome and do we have to rather than we want to? So here, God's accusation of his people, you have contempt for my name, is well founded. Let's briefly read on to chapter 2, where we find the root of, his pro- of this problem. It is the hearts of the priests and the people. And now, this admonition... This rebuke is for you, O priests. If you do not listen, and if you do not set your heart to honour my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you, and I'll curse your blessings. Yes, I've already cursed them, because you have not set your heart to honour me. Since they've not set their heart to honour God, They've shown instead through their actions and attitudes that they despise the great name of the God of the nations. Which puts them on a firm trajectory through acting like Esau and his descendants, the people of Edom. And rather than acting godly, they're acting wickedly like Esau. And this is the startling challenge that God tells them to wake them up from their half-heartedness. And maybe as we're reading this chapter, an uncomfortable question has begun to arise in your minds. We're talking about Jacob and Esau. He says, I've loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. I thought God was a God of love. What's happening? Well, let's have a look at that. Let's first of all look at Jacob. God says, I have loved Jacob. Did Jacob do anything that deserves God's love? What What was Jacob known as? A liar and deceiver. His very name, Jacob, was on, the, was on the realm of deceiver. How did he get his birthright and blessing? By deception and trickery. He is not the great example of a God-fearing man. And yet, despite his flaws, despite not deserving anything to earn this love, God loves him. And God does the same to his people. As we mentioned earlier, they have done nothing to earn his love, but actually they should earn his wrath and hatred. And yet God still says, I have loved you. Even though you failed, even though you have been disobedient, I have loved you. Because God is faithful to his promises. And Genesis 12, 1 to 3, talks about God's promise to Abraham that I will make you a great nation, who I will bless will be blessed. Those who will curse you will be cursed. And that your name will be great among the nations. And through your seed, the nations will be blessed. God is keeping to his promise despite Jacob's and his people's unfaithfulness. Well, let's now turn to Esau, perhaps the more difficult part of the passage. If you went to Genesis 25 you would see that Esau 
gives up his birthright for what? A bowl of soup. A bowl of stew. Not even stew with meat in it. Lentil stew. And so at the very end of chapter 25, it says, So Esau despised his birthright. This birthright, which was to bless the nations, he considers it not even worth a bowl of soup. Whereas Jacob, with all his flaws, desired this birthright. But it goes bigger than this. From the very beginning, even in Rachel's womb, Jacob and Esau were in conflict with each other. And as soon as Jacob took the birthright and took the blessing, Esau wanted to kill him. Yeah, exactly. That's how fierce it was. Wanted to kill him. And the people of Esau, further on in Malachi 1, the people of Edom, or another term for Esau, they have been hostile to God's people ever since. If you went to Numbers chapter 20, you'd find that on the way to the promised land, the people of Edom refused to let the people of Israel pass. We just want to go through. We'll not use up any of your resources. We just want to use the road to get to the other side. Edom's response, try, but we will respond to you with violence and sword on your way. It gets worse. If you look at Psalm 137 verse 7, the psalmist says, Remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. When Israel was attacked, Edom was there cheering on the nation attacking Israel. Do it, do it. No, you're not attacking hard enough. Tear them down so they'll never be there again. Lamentations chapter 4 says this in verse 22. O daughter of Zion, your punishment will end. He will not prolong your exile. But O daughter of Edom, he will punish your sin and expose your wickedness. And then finally, in the shortest book of the Old Testament, Obadiah. It's only got one chapter. Obadiah, verse 10 and then verse 18. Verse 10 says of this. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you'll be cut off forever. And then verse 18, the house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau a stubble and they shall burn them and consume them. So actually this verse in Malachi is nothing new. Throughout the Old Testament, God has been warning what will happen to the wicked Edom because of their wickedness and despising the birthright. Because what Esau's people have been doing have been trying to be hostile to the people of God and therefore the promises of God and therefore the purposes of God and therefore God himself constantly, time and time again. And they have not repented. And so, just as Esau despises his birthright, and so the people despise that birthright, God will use that nation as a way of showing his divine judgment and his wrath. They will be a wicked people, and they will be no more. Further showing his love to Israel, look, I've destroyed a nation that was set against you. I'm doing this. Remember that. 
John MacArthur says, More than any other nation mentioned in the Old Testament, Edom is the supreme object of God's wrath. And this, despite their attempts to rebuild, they're destined for destruction. And while the sons of Jacob were disciplined and set to exile, they were graciously allowed to come back and rebuild. The sons of Edom are not. But here, the people of God have forgotten how to act like his people and are acting like the people of Edom. They're despising the birthright of God and of Abraham. And God's concluding, I'm not pleased with you. You may as well not offer me anything. And this is because a major theme running through chapter 1 is the great name of the Lord. In chapter 1 of Malachi, the honour, respect and greatness of the name of God is mentioned time and time again. How does God address himself here in chapter 1? In one version, he is the Lord of hosts. In the NIV, he is the Lord God Almighty. Not just the God of Israel, but the Lord God Almighty. None is more powerful than him. None is greater than him. None is more worthy of respect and honour. And God reminds his people as he talks to them, this is who you're talking to. This is who you should be worshipping. He says this in verse 6. Am I not a master? Am I not a father? Then where is my real honour and respect that is due me? And he seems to say in verse 8 and 7, 7 and 8, Am I a mere lowly governor? And yet this poultry overseer is getting the best stuff, and I'm getting your diseased remains. Why are you giving him more respect than the great king of the nation and of the universe? It is clear that once again his people have gone astray and are adulterous. And you'll see that more in chapter 2. Because they've forgotten who God is and what he has done, the Psalms tell us to preach to ourselves, reminding ourselves of what God has done, his great deeds. The people have done the opposite. They have forgotten and they are quick to be absent-minded. And they become complacent in how they treat and view their maker. And instead of examining their own hearts, they have allowed their own hearts to be defiled, their own hearts reflecting the state of the sacrifices that they give to God day after day. Is it any wonder that God is not accepting it? Looking at verse 5, as a result, Israel, although they will exclaim the truth, Great is the God even beyond the borders of Israel. They will not be the ones declaring God is great to the nations. How can they? They can't even do it in their own home. Instead, it will be God. Just like it was him who loved Jacob, who brought Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. And it will be God who will make his name great, despite his people's failings. Yet one day, they will respond finally respond to what God has done and who he is. John Piper says this, you can never call out, let the nations be glad, if you cannot say from the heart, I rejoice in the Lord. The people cannot reach the nations because they've forgotten rejoicing in the Lord 
To him, to them, God is but a burden, not a delight. Well, unlike the priests in Malachi, who show contempt for God's name, they do the bare minimum, we have a priest who's done the complete opposite, who faithfully shows zeal for the name of the Lord, the son who honours and respects the father, who through his sacrifice desires to bring the nations into realisation that the Lord is great and worthy of worship. God's purpose for his own name shall be fully realised in Jesus Christ, the one who came to redeem humanity and the nations, and making himself a people, as you look in verse 11, from among the rising to the setting of the sun, from all over the earth. God is the God of Israel, but is not bound nor content to stay in those borders. He said his name is to be feared among the nations. His name is to be great among the nations. And he warns Israel, I'm not just staying here, I'm going out to where I should be. To be a great king, where pleasing incense and pure offerings will be brought to him from every corner of the earth. And we become part of this when we follow Christ, commissioned as a church to bring worship as a result of mission. John Piper says this, Mission is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this is all over, and the countless millions of the redeemed, redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, Missions will be in a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions, we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples in the greatness of God. And you can't commend what you do not cherish. The priests have forgotten to commend God because they do not cherish him. They cannot worship him, and so they cannot bring him to the nations. And so God will do it himself. So this chapter starts with God declaring his love to his people, who then interject, questioning this fact. And God quickly turns the accusation upside down. By conveying that he does, saying the difference between how he dealt with Jacob to how he dealt with Esau. Showing his promise to them and the covenant he has made. God counter-accuses the people. The lack of love is from the people, not from God. Because they show contempt for his great name. They've forgotten what God has done for them. Where he made them an object of his mercy rather than wrath like Esau and his descendants, and they've forgotten that. Because they've taken their covenant with God for granted. Instead of delighting in God, their worship has become a burden, and their priestly roles become more of a joke, getting away with a bare minimum, trying to find loopholes, trying to half heartedly do it and get away with it. Well, the issue is once again the issue of the heart. They fear and respect the governor more than they fear and respect God. And we, the church, 
must not do the same. We must, not be, we must be careful not to put the desire of man or culture over the Lord. Because this will not be pleasing to him and will result, result in dishonor and disrespect that God will correct. Because if we are quick to judge the priests, and I know we want to because they've done a terrible job. We must first also examine and judge our own hearts and ourselves. Too often, if we're honest, and we need to be, we are like the people of Malachi's day. Guilty of hard-heartedness, half-heartedness. Have we gone cold towards the Lord, forgetting what he has done? Are our hearts like the priests? Where our lack of love has affected our worship. Where we have tried to show complacency in our worship. Where we have tried to see God as a burden, our vision skewed of him. And so we show contempt for his name in our very lives and hearts. But before you say, no, I don't do that at all. Examine yourself, because it's very easy to do that. It's very easy to be guilty of that, even realizing the priests did not do it overnight. They began to slip bit by bit until they became like what they are here. So how do we counteract that? We must go to the cross. Because at the cross, we have a priest who not only brings zeal to the father and honors him as a son that should be and as a servant that should be he is the one that will bring the nations to say the lord is great it is he alone that does that and is he who has brought the nations into that by being not a blemished sacrifice but being the great sacrifice of god when we look at Verse 14, cursed is the cheat who has given acceptable mail in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. Christ gives his very own pure self, not just an acceptable sacrifice, but the ultimate sacrifice. And what he does is regardless if you know him today or if your hearts are offensive to him today, is he makes the offering right through not our own stained blemished hands but through his own sacrificial blood-stained nail driven hands it is through jesus sacrifice that we can come to the lord be loved by the lord and through him that our profane hearts will become pure offerings so let's not forget today what the Lord has done for us. He's done something greater than what he's done for the people of Israel. He sent Jesus, his very self, to come on the cross and take the sacrifice of a people who have been offensive, of a people who have been rebellious. And today, if you're not a Christian, if you're like Esau, you cannot be made right with God by your own self, by trying on your very self to to do it you can rebuild but god will demolish because if you're not submitting to him and worshiping him and seeing how great he is 
you're part of the wicked land, destined to destruction. But the good news is, God has come so that the wicked may be redeemed. Not that we deserve it, but to bring the nations to be blessed through Jesus, keeping his promise to Abraham and allowing us to be part of that. So let's pray now. Father God, forgive us for being hard-hearted, for being like these priests, or for being like Esau and his descendants. Forgive us if we have taken you for granted, if we've been complacent in our own faith. But we thank you for your gracious love, the love that we do not deserve. We thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus, that he came not as a defective sacrifice, but the sacrifice that none could compare to bring us from judgment into mercy, for bring us from wrath into grace. Lord, we thank you that this was not a burden to you, but a delight. And we pray for our hearts to respond, knowing that your name is great, that you are a great God, your sacrifice has been great, and that your grace and love is great. But Lord, helps remind us that also your judgment is great and that the nations need you, the God of the nations. Amen.